Also, we get Stan's cameo as the bus driver here. It might actually be his earliest camo in the entirety of the MCU. Strange uses a massive portal to evacuate all cameo. the civilians. Cameo, cameo, you said camo. Camo? Mm-hmm. I, I, Excelsior, I said camo instead of cameo, true believers. We can do this all day, episode 24, Avengers Infinity War Review. Are you ready, partner? Rock and roll, buckaroo. Hi, this is Mark. And this is Emily. And And we we can can do do this this all day. day. A podcast where we review all the movies in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. We'll go through each film in the MCU chronologically and discuss our overall impressions. Things we liked, things we didn't like, and everything in between. We hope you'll tune in and stay with us till the end of the line. Hi, everybody. My name is Mark Villa. I'm glad you could join us this evening. With me, as always, is our co-host, co-producer, co-everything because she is as much a part of this show as anyone else. Emily Griswold. Hey, Emily. Hello. Can you believe we finally made it to Infinity War? We've been doing this show for not quite two years now. That's wild. This thing will probably drop sometime in July, and we started in July of 2020. Well, there you go. And neither Yowza. of us have gotten COVID in that yeah. whole in that whole <laughs> time. Just, neither of us have gotten just, it. No, no, I didn't, I didn't say anything about the future. I just said... In the whole time that we've done the podcast, neither of us have gotten COVID. Hopefully neither of us have it right now and just don't know it. No, I don't. <laughs> I'm going to knock on, knock on uh, Ikea, Ikea wood. No, yeah, that's um, mine too. A particle, but actually technically it's not. I, can't, I did not get this from Ikea, but it might as well be. It's got the, it's like particle board kind of construction. So we're just kind of marveling <laughs> over the fact that we've been at this for two years now. We finally made it up to the first of the really big ones. Avengers Infinity War, one of my favorite movies. But before we do that, well, yeah, we have a little bit of MCU news that we can dive into. <laughs> Welcome to the world of the 45-day theatrical releases. <laughs> By the time you hear this podcast, Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness will have already been available to stream on Disney Plus for at least a few weeks. It drops on June 22nd on Disney Plus, just about 45 days after it was released in the theaters, which is convenient because I can now just watch it with my wife and kid who didn't see it with me in the theater, and I don't have to take them. And uh, Miss Marvel's out, yeah? Ms. Marvel just dropped, yeah, as of this recording, Ms. Marvel's second episode is out right now. Have you seen it? I haven't seen either of them. I keep meaning to. I think you're going to like Ms. Marvel. I, I think I know you well enough. Emily, I think you will really, really enjoy Ms. Marvel. I'm loving it. It's a fun show. They do some really neat stuff. It's just wildly entertaining. Iman Vellani is so good, is so good as Kamala Khan. Uh, uh, This bodes very well for the future of the MCU, if she's a big part of it, which I certainly hope she is. I mean, it certainly sounds like she's going to be a big part of the MCU. She's so vibrant, and she captures the energy of this character, and she is just... She's just wonderful, and she's well-supported by her, the rest of the cast. As an undergraduate, I went to school to a school. I went to a very small school in, in southeastern Pennsylvania. For some reason, we had a very large number of, of students from abroad studying there who were from South Asia. So I became very close to a lot of people from India and Pakistan and Bangladesh and Sri Lanka. And, you know, all those years, you know, being close with a lot of these friends of mine, you, you pick up a few things about, about the culture. The, you know, especially I had a, a very good friend, you know, from Pakistan. And you, you, you kind of learn a lot of sort of, you know, typical, <laughs> typical family dynamics and things like that. And from what I've been able to gather, it is so 
ridiculously accurate <laughs> from that standpoint. I So many of the things that they you see in that show, I've seen being around the, the families of some of my various friends from, from Pakistan and India, and it's it just rings so true. And Malala Yousafzai uh, hand wrote a note to Marvel and it, it went up on their Instagram feed like a week ago. She was watching after she watched the first episode and she was blown away. She said, yes, this is like the story of me and so many other girls I grew up with. This is beautiful. Thank you, Marvel. And that was a really neat thing to see. So I hope we get to see it soon. I think it's a really neat show. Let's get started because this is going to be a, we got a, this is a long movie. We got a lot to say. Avengers Infinity War opened in the U.S. on April 27th, 2018, just two months after the release of Black Panther. It stars... <gasps> Here we go. Robert Downey Jr., Chris Hemsworth, Mark Ruffalo, Chris Evans, Scarlett Johansson, Benedict Cumberbatch, Don Cheadle, Tom Holland, Chadwick Boseman, Paul Bettany, Elizabeth Olsen, Anthony Mackie, Sebastian Stan, Danai Gurira, Letitia Wright, Dave Bautista, Zoe Saldana, Josh Brolin, Chris Pratt, Karen Gillan, Peter Dinklage, Palm Clementieff, Bradley Cooper, and Vin Diesel. I literally did that in all in just one breath. Wow. That is a lot of names. That is a lot of names. The Russo brothers, Anthony and Joe, return to the MCU after having directed the hugely successful Captain America The Winter Soldier and Captain America Civil War. They are directing this film, which was written by Christopher Marcus and Stephen McFeely, the scribes who also wrote those two aforementioned films, plus Captain America The First Avenger. I'll leave out the fact that they had a hand in writing Thor The Dark World. <laughs> At the box office, this film had a budget of somewhere between $325 and $400 million. It made more than $2 billion. Billion, that's billion with a B, dollars worldwide. It was easily the highest grossing film of 2018, and it is currently the fifth highest grossing film of all time, behind Star Wars The Force Awakens, Titanic, Avengers Endgame, and Avatar. In many ways, Infinity War is, to me, the ultimate Marvel team-up crossover comic book come to life. It is a massive, galaxy-spanning epic that features almost... All of our favorite Marvel heroes squaring off against one of their most deadly foes. It has a compelling story that doesn't ever get bogged down at any point, despite its length. And with some of the best action set pieces in all the MCU, some serious drama, and some absolutely heartbreaking moments, including a cliffhanger ending that had, I think, most of us waiting anxiously and with bated breath for an entire year after. And in particular, I like how it serves as kind of a natural consequence or progression from what's happened before, specifically, you know, the fallout between Tony and Cap that had its origins in Avengers and Age of Ultron and finally culminated in Civil War. And, you know, as we all know, you have to put our heroes in the worst possible position in a story so that you can build them back up and have them triumph in the end. When I rewatched it for the podcast, I don't think I realized just how easy it is to watch. Like, there's a lot going on, like a ton going on. But I remember I reached maybe 45 minutes into the movie and it did not feel like it had been 45 minutes. It felt like it had been 10. And I didn't feel like I was lost or confused at any point. So I think that's one thing that makes it really good. And I'd kind of forgotten, I think, because the further you get into the more recent movies, they feel like you have to undertake such an event. Like you have to undertake so much to know what's going on, to understand the backstory that in my brain, for some reason, I feel like it's not a good rewatchable movie, but it is because it was so easy to watch it this time. And it's not that long either com compared. Well, it's I like mean, compared to Endgame, it's oh, only compared to Endgame. It's like the second longest, well, up to this point, but it also yeah, well, doesn't feel long. It doesn't feel like it took all night, even though it did. But it didn't well, feel like it took all night. 
Well, yeah, by contrast, I think two of the shortest movies in the MCU are Thor The Dark World and Ant-Man and the Wasp. <laughs> and I think I know what you would say, but I find both of those movies a heck of a lot harder to watch. Right, yeah. Than, but this one is so Infinity easy War. to watch, yeah. It just flows. And I think that they have the Russo brothers and Marcus and McFeely, they wrote it. I think they just put together such a really good story. The Russo brothers just kind of were able to execute on a level that makes a two-hour and 20-minute movie feel like it's over in a heartbeat i've got this one sitting as then this has not changed in two years this is sitting at number three out of 28 just ahead of avengers endgame and just behind doctor strange there are only two other movies in the mcu that i like more than infinity war that just really says a lot now that we're at like 28 films i have it at six for right now i have some serious problems with thanos this whole thing for why he's doing what he's doing in this movie but in general i think you know like i said it's so easy to watch and it's one of the few combination movies in the mcu i think that puts a ton of different people together up against a baddie and does it really well you know i don't feel stressed or frantic while i'm watching it like i don't feel like i'm jumping from place to place it makes a lot more sense than a bunch of the other combo movies so let's get into the film a distress call is heard as the marvel logos roll the ship carrying the remains of the asgardian people to earth as last seen in Thor Ragnarok, is under attack from an unknown vessel. Unknown, that is, until it is revealed moments later that it is Sanctuary 2, the ship of Thanos, he who originally sent Loki to Earth to conquer it in Avengers, he who originally recruited Ronan the Accuser to retrieve the Power Stone, aka the Orb, in Guardians of the Galaxy. We see numerous dead and wounded on the ship, including a severely wounded Heimdall. Loki appears relatively unscathed. Thanos and his minions, Ebony Maw, Cull Obsidian, Proxima Midnight, and Corvus Glaive have boarded the ship. Those are some of the dumbest names I think I've ever heard. <laughs> he wields the Infinity Gauntlet, which now contains the Power Stone, stolen from Xandar prior to intercepting the Asgardian ship. After torturing and threatening to kill Thor, Thanos coerces Loki into giving him the Tesseract, which Loki apparently stole from Odin's chambers while he was setting Surtur free to fight Hela in Ragnarok. Out of nowhere, the Hulk attacks Thanos, but is quickly overpowered and subdued by him. With the last of his strength, Heimdall summons the Bifrost, which carries the Hulk away. Thanos then kills Heimdall, as Thor can only watch on in horror and rage. Thanos breaks the Tesseract, revealing the Time Stone, which he promptly adds to the gauntlet. Loki attempts to stab Thanos with his dagger, but Thanos uses the Power Stone to thwart the attack. He then kills Loki, declaring, no resurrections this time. Thanos then destroys the ship with the Power Stone as he and his minions retreat using the Space Stone. We then see Hulk hurtling through space and landing on Earth, crashing into the Sanctum Sanctorum in New York. Stephen Strange and Wong approach him as he lies in the demolished stairwell of the Sanctum. He transforms back into Bruce Banner, all the while uttering, Thanos is coming. And to think, only about 15 minutes earlier, we were reveling in the lightness and the triumph of Thor Ragnarok, only to have it brutally ripped away from us and stomped on. Less than 10 minutes into this film, and both Loki and Heimdall are dead. I mean, wow. It makes me wonder how that conversation went down over at Marvel Studios. You know, Kevin Feige calls Taika Waititi and tells him, yeah, you know that glorious two hours of levity you just gave us? We're going to take a massive you-know-what all over it. It's just an absolutely devastating way to open the film. And I actually kind of love it because it's so damn dramatic. I mean, this is Kevin Feige kind of telling us we're not playing around here. Thanos means business. Also, 
I love how right before Hulk crashes into the Sanctum, when Strange asks Wong if he wants anything from the deli, but Wong has no money, Wong tells him that attachment to the material is detachment from the spirit, and Strange responds that he'll tell the guys at the deli to make him a metaphysical ham on rye. <laughs> I just think that's a really funny line. It's very strange, as in very Stephen Strange. So, of course, I have a lot of things to say about Thanos. I'm going to save that. Oh, a warning, warning to the audience. Emily is going to have a lot of things to say. I have a lot of opinions, TM, about... Yes. Ugh. Ugh. Okay. Anyway, the one positive thing I will say is that I think he's got a couple really great lines. There's a part here when he's dragging Thor towards Loki after Ebony Maw's stupid speech. And he says, dread it, run from it, destiny arrives all the same, and now it's here. Granted, he ruins it by essentially saying that he is destiny, but I think it's especially an interesting line to say to Loki, given what we know now with the Disney Plus series. And even though we've gotten plenty of Loki content since this movie, his death still just ruins me. Like, it hurts my heart so much, and I think this is one of the few times we've gotten to see real Loki, not just bratty chaos magnet Loki. And it's so devastating, I think, to see how small Thor and Loki are, like two gods before Thanos. Like, even Hulk isn't that big compared to Thanos. Well, and that was, that I think was the whole point of that opening scene to demonstrate to the audience what a dangerous threat Thanos is. He, he makes short work of the Hulk. The two strongest Avengers, Thor and Hulk, Thanos wipes the floor with them in a matter of minutes. We don't see him fight Thor, but we can only assume. We can extrapolate from everything we've seen him. He made short work of the Hulk. He'll well, make and sure, we see him torture Thor. Thor. Yes, that's true. <laughs> Which is bad enough, I think. Oh, and by the way, just so we can, just so we can get it out of the way, and so I can, and so I can ruin any clandestine attempts of you to do so. Venom, 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 venom. I was gonna venom, do it. I was venom, just waiting for the good, venom. for a good time. I feel, <laughs> I got obliged. To, I, I got it. to dear, I got to derail it. So venom, 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 venom. Emily loves venom. I was actually looking up the how would, how would how would venom how would venom have dealt with Thanos? No, 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 no. I don't care about that. Uh, my question was, they got snapped, right? Did they get snapped? Did who get snapped? Venom. Venom was not in, at the time, Venom was not in Oh, the, right, uh, he's in another... He's in a parallel dimension. He's in another sort of universe, thing. right. Never mind then. That was going to be my question, because I wasn't sure. And I was like, wait, these movies came out like six, within six months of each other. That's fine. That's all I had to do. We could have just waited. Gotten well, two and a half hours into this, and I could have said that. I wanted to beat you to it. That's hey. fine. I wanted to derail your... I still win because we're still talking about Venom. I know. Here we are. How many minutes have we been talking about Venom already? I'm embracing it myself. I'm I'm seizing the moment and... Pro-Venom. Turning it into a... Pro-Venom. This is a pro-Venom podcast. We both love Venom. Mark Villa loves Venom. (laughs) You're only saying that because you're editing this one, (laughs) aren't you? (laughs) I can't... Because I would remove that in a heartbeat. I would put it back in disclaimer even though at least even though none of you will hear this i'm not a fan of venom you are mark loves venom cut to central park where tony stark and pepper potts newly engaged as seen in spider-man homecoming have just gone for a run and are discussing a dream tony has in which pepper is pregnant with their daughter whom he also envisions they will name morgan after pepper's eccentric uncle pepper points out a piece of tech tony is wearing on his chest he says it's a housing unit for nanoparticles just in case there's a monster in the closet strange and banner then portal into the park and urge tony to come with them 
Pepper's little line about you should have shirts in your closet is actually so funny because it's like, babe, you've known him since he was hawking weapons of mass destruction. There are definitely not just shirts in Tony's closet, and that's been the case forever. I will have something ancillary to say about this in just a few minutes. Back at the Sanctum. Wong explains how the six Infinity Stones were created during the Big Bang, and that each one controls an essential aspect of existence. Space, blue. Reality, red. Power, purple. Soul, orange. Mind, yellow. And time, green, which Strange still carries with him in the Eye of Agamotto. Bruce explains that Thanos is like a plague. He invades, takes what he wants, and kills half the population. If he gets all six Infinity Stones... He'll cause destruction on an unimaginable scale. Bruce says that Thanos killed Thor, and that the Earth is his next target, since he knows of at least two stones there. The Time Stone, which is in Strange's possession, and which he has sworn to protect, despite Tony's urgings to destroy it. And the Mind Stone, which is currently embedded in the head of the Vision. Tony says that Vision turned off his transponder two weeks earlier for reasons unknown and can't be tracked. When Strange asks him who might be able to locate Vision, Tony responds... Maybe Steve Rogers. Bruce notices Strange's reaction to that answer. Oh, great. Wondering why that's a problem. Without going into the details of what transpired during Captain America's Civil War, Tony tells Bruce that the Avengers split up and that he and Cap aren't talking to each other. Bruce implores him to call Steve nonetheless, with the universe at stake and all that. You know, according to the Russo brothers, the plan was to make it so that if you actually dialed the number displayed on Steve's phone... You'd get a voicemail greeting recorded by Chris Evans, but the Disney legal team nixed that idea, so we never got it. That's too bad. Which is a shame. That would have been fun. That would have been funny. I'm reserving my major rant for Thanos uh, for a different part of the movie. Your major rant. My big one. This is a minor one. But I just want to acknowledge first here what a stupid plan this is right off the bat. Also, Strange's hitherto undreamt of line is a line that lives rent free in my head and has actually destroyed my ability to accept people as normal when they say hitherto. Like, no matter what scenario it is, no matter if, like, there's a legitimate reason to use that phrase or that word. And also, I love that Tony is so weird about Steve. You know, they're not talking blah, 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 but he's carrying that flip phone with him that only has Steve's number in it on a run with Pepper. As we say in Texas, bless his heart. First of all, I I need to make it my mission to use the word hitherto in every single episode from here on out. I'll just stare into the void every time you say it. Like, why? There are so many other words that aren't weird. Just to annoy the living crap out of Emily. Hitherto undreamt of. Hitherto undreamt of. Oh, the phone. Yeah, well, you know, I'm sure the Tony Steve shippers out there. <laughs> you're 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 a fan. I'm you're a fanfic person. I'm for sure people have written. Yeah. I'm sure. I'm sure you. Oh, definitely. Uh, you are aware yeah. of that. They get a little bit of mileage out of that. Tony continuing to carry Steve's phone with him. But everywhere, like, why would you need to carry it on a run, honey? You're with your wife. You're not gonna. Ca- I mean, this time you're calling Steve, but like normally. You can leave that in the office, bud. It's okay. When you're when you're an Avenger, you never know when the <laughs> hitherto undreamt of end of the world might strike. So you got to be prepared. That's why there's not just shirts in his closet. <laughs> Tony pulls out the flip phone given to him by Steve in the end of Civil War and is about to dial him when he and the others notice a strong gust of air blowing around them and notice lots of people rushing past the front door of the Sanctum. They head out to Bleecker Street and are greeted with pure chaos as a massive Q-ship sent by Thanos is now hovering over them. Meanwhile, in a school bus crossing the Queensboro Bridge, Peter Parker's spider sense, a.k.a. his Peter Tingle, goes off, and he looks out the window to see the Q-ship hovering over Manhattan. With the help of a distraction caused by Ned, Peter is able to sneak off of the moving bus, 
don his mask, and start webbing his way toward the ship. Pardon my French, folks, but it's not quite as funny unless you actually say the word. Holy shit! We're all gonna die! They are Ned's only lines in the entire movie, and I love them. <laughs> just, that just cracks me up every time he says it. Also, we've got Stan's cameo as the bus driver here. It might be his earliest cameo in the entire MCU. Strange uses a massive portal to evacuate all the civilians in the area, just as Ebony Maw and Cull Obsidian beam down from the ship. Banner attempts to transform into the Hulk, but is unable to do so. Where's your guy? I don't know, we've sort of been having a thing. This is no time for a thing. That there, that's a thing. Let's go. Dude, you're embarrassing me in front of the wizards. <laughs> There's just too many good lines in this movie. There's too many good one-liners in this movie. Tony taps the thing on his chest, and it deploys an Iron Man suit composed of nanoparticles. He, Strange, and Wong engage Obsidian and Maw. They fight. Cull Obsidian is massive and has mega strength, while Ebony Maw appears to possess telekinesis. Obsidian pursues Tony into Washington Square Park, where he's about to get the drop on him until Spider-Man arrives at the last moment to help out. Maw attempts to remove the Time Stone from Strange, but Strange has cast a Dead Man spell of protection on it. Maw renders Strange unconscious and beams him and himself aboard the Q-ship. Parker pursues them and ends up hanging onto the outside of the ship as it starts to ascend away from the Earth. Wong portal strands Obsidian in some faraway place with lots of snow, while Tony launches himself toward the Q-ship. He orders the Avengers compound to launch a pod towards the rapidly ascending Peter. The pod deploys the Iron Spider, a nanotech suit much like Tony's, which attaches to Parker, activates, and allows him to breathe in the upper atmosphere. But at Tony's command, it also deploys a parachute, with the intention of forcing Parker to return to Earth while he enters the Q-ship forcibly. Despite the parachute, Parker finds a way to grab onto the ship and enter it. The Q-ship then enters hyperspace, or FTL, faster than light, or whatever they're calling that in the MCU. With the Time Stone gone, Wong retreats to the Sanctum to guard it. Bruce finds the flip phone, having been dropped by Tony before the fight, and calls Steve Rogers. Because we have two Peters in this movie, I have to distinguish them now. So anytime I'm referring to Peter Parker, I'll call him Parker. Anytime I'm returning, referring to Peter Quill, I will call him Quill. Just FYI. So, first, the good. I love this fight. Not just because it's a good fight, but also because it's just the first example of what this film does best. Marvel team-ups. We've got Iron Man, Doctor Strange, Wong, and Spider-Man facing off against aliens in New York City. It doesn't get much more Marvel comics-y than that. And now the bad. I said I would have something to say about Pepper a little bit later on in the program, and here it is. Pepper calls Tony just as he's boarding the Q-ship and implores him to come home, and rather vehemently, I might add. Maybe I'm missing something here, but she's engaged to Iron Man. She's known he's Iron Man for years at this point. What would make her think that he wouldn't be boarding a hostile alien spaceship that threatens the Earth? You're telling me she hasn't accepted that this is what Tony does? It's kind of like you were saying earlier. Why on Earth would she even think that he would have nothing but shirts in his closet? This is what he does. And she's going to tell him, no, don't be an Avenger during a global crisis? I'm sorry, but if you're going to marry Tony Stark, you got to be prepared to accept this stuff. I mean, she, she winds through that scene on that phone call, and this really, really annoys me. You know, Come back here, Tony. I swear to God. She's like the anti-Laura Barton. She's like Karen Potts. 
Yeah, I don't know what to do with Pepper. Like, she's honestly, I think, gotten so much weaker as the movies have gone on. But one thing I did want to talk about with this scene is the similarities between this particular scene and the scene from the first Avengers movie, when Tony is going to space for the first time. Tony, again, has decided to go into space to fight aliens, but this time, everything is different. The Avengers are busted up. He's got to deal with someone else who's, you know, sort of tagging along to space with him. He actually answered Pepper's call this time. And, like, I think you can even see it in his face. I think it's not just PTSD. I think he's just thinking, this is a bad one. Like, there have been bad ones before, but this is a bad, bad one. I don't think I'm going to make our 8 o'clock reservation. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) no, probably not, dude. Cut to, as the card at the bottom of the screen so obviously states, which I think is rather funny, space. We hear the funky strains of Rubber Band Man by The Spinners, a record my parents owned on 45 vinyl back in 1976, by the way, as we see the Benatar, the new home and ship of the Guardians of the Galaxy, hurtling through space, responding to the distress call sent by the Asgardians. When they arrive, they are met with nothing but debris and bodies. One of those bodies, Thor, slams into the cockpit window and opens his eyes. They bring him aboard, and Mantis wakes him up. After Thor tells the Guardians what happened, Gamora, daughter of Thanos, tells them that it is her father's mission to bring order to the universe by killing half of its population. If he gets all six Infinity Stones, he can do it with a snap of his fingers. Thor knows which stones Thanos already has, and he assumes that the Avengers will guard the two stones on Earth. He says nobody seems to know where the Soul Stone is, a comment which appears to give Gamora pause, wink wink. Therefore, Thanos himself must be headed to nowhere, where the Reality Stone, in the form of the Aether, is being held by the Collector, whom we saw receive the Aether from Sif and Volstagg way back in the mid-credits scene of Thor the Dark World, which of course (laughs) Emily and I loved so much. After some brief banter and bickering among the group, this is the Guardians of the Galaxy after all, it's decided that the group will split up. Peter Quill, Drax, Mantis, and Gamora will head to nowhere in the Benatar to try to stop Thanos from getting the Reality Stone, while Thor, Rocket, and a teenage Groot use the Benatar's support pod to fly to Nidavellir, the fabled home of the dwarf king Itri, who manufactures some of the most legendary weapons in the galaxy, including Mjolnir. Thor hopes he will be able to fashion a weapon with which to kill Thanos. I've said in earlier shows that another reason I love this movie is Drax and Dave Bautista's performance. He gets in some fantastic one-liners in this film, including this scene's now infamous, he is not a dude. This is a man, a handsome, muscular man. It's like a pirate had a baby with an angel. And as I said earlier in this podcast, this movie is so good with the team-ups. Here we get Thor meeting the Guardians of the Galaxy. I mean, at this point in the MCU, just having that happen on screen was precious to me. Because in the comics, Thor has a significant cosmic presence, and it's, I thought it was a really cool thing to have him and the Guardians teaming up. I think I'm going to say something rather sacrilegious. I think that's the right term. I don't think Chris Hemsworth is that attractive. <laughs> oh my goodness. Wow. I think he wow. has... That's a, that's a hot take if I've, I've heard one. <laughs> I mean, I think he's not, like, ugly by any means. I think he's, like, a 7 out of 10, which I think is still pretty good. He's got great <laughs> he's got great abs, right, and great hair, except for the first Thor movie. I think once he cuts it, once it's shorter, it's good. But in general, like, I don't know. There are other better Chris's. Even within the MCU, there's, like, 80 million Chris's. There are better ones. You have noted you approve of the, the shirtless scenes. Well, yeah, of course. Everybody does. I don't know anyone who doesn't. I'm just saying I don't think he's, like, the most handsome. I don't think he's a pirate had a baby with an angel handsome. (laughs) 
and yet he gets an obligatory shirtless scene in well, on all of his solo movies he does. All right, well, that's fine. Yeah, I just wanted to open myself up to the ravages of the internet and say my right. piece. <laughs> there goes whatever ratings we had. What? <laughs> I'm just kidding. We've talked about shirtless Chris Hemsworth before. You have never outright said, quote, Chris Hemsworth is not attractive, unquote. I still said he was a 7 out of 10. Okay. Is that not good? Uh, I... I just think there are, like, nines and tens in the universe, and he's just not one of them. Okay, well, I guess I shouldn't be surprised. I mean, we already know who inhabits some of those nines and tens. And they're not all Chris's, thank goodness. And, and, and uh, well, I, I figured none of your nines or tens were Chris's. I do think Chris Evans is pretty cute. In Edinburgh, Scotland, Wanda Maximoff and The Vision, now sporting a human-looking exterior, are secretly spending some time together. They've been stealing these moments together for the two years since the events of Civil War, and now Vision is contemplating the two of them stealing away together permanently. He has also been having some odd sensations emanating from the Mind Stone as of late. Without warning, they are ambushed by Proxima Midnight and Corvus Glaive, who severely wounds Vision and attempts to forcibly remove the stone from his head. Wanda and Vision fight them off as best they can, but they are overmatched and about to be finished off at the train station. They are saved by the timely arrival of Steve Rogers, Natasha Romanoff, and Sam Wilson, who fight off Midnight and Glaive before they are beamed up to their ship and depart the planet. The heroes board a waiting Quinjet, presumably the same one given to Natasha by Rick Mason at the end of Black Widow, and head for the Avengers compound. This is one of my favorite scenes in the movie for a number of reasons. We get to see what a skilled fighter Wanda has become, and how truly powerful she is. We get to see Cap make a heroic entrance, shieldless though he currently is. We get to hear the opening part of Alan Silvestri's Avengers theme for the first time in a very long time. And it's just a really cool fight, despite the fact that it's kind of short, especially once Cap and company arrive. Natasha skewers Corvus Glaive like a few seconds after she arrives, and the hand-to-hand stuff with her and Proxima Midnight and Cap I think is really, really awesome. I just really like dark and mysterious Cap over star-spangled cap, like, a lot. (laughs) Four out of five millennials prefer emo cap over regular cap. We cut to a flashback of Gamora as a little girl. During Thanos' siege of her home planet, she is separated from her mother during the initial attack and catches the eye of Thanos himself. He quietly takes her aside and gives her an ornamental double-bladed dagger, even as his soldiers execute half of the population of the village. Fast forward to the present. Gamora informs Quill that there's something she knows that Thanos doesn't, and if he does learn it, the entire universe could be at risk. She makes Quill swear on his mother that he will kill her if Thanos somehow gets a hold of her. These back-to-back super serious Gamora scenes are rounded out with another classic Drax moment, with him thinking he's mastered the ability to become invisible. I like how Mantis just comes along and totally bursts his bubble. It's like, hi Drax! Okay, I can't take it anymore. I'm going to complain about Thanos. Everybody strap in. Here we go, folks. Here we go. The following opinion expressed by Emily Griswold does not necessarily represent that of the staff of We Can Do This All Day. It should. Because it represents half the staff. It should represent all the staff. I think he's stupid. Okay. (laughs) Thanos. Mr. I took a semester of econ in undergrad, so actually I know everything about resource scarcity, and I most definitely know the exact answer to this problem, and it's a massive universal holocaust. I just... It's the dumbest thing I've ever heard, for one. I have a hard time accepting resource scarcity when billionaires exist. I think the issue is more that we have resource hoarding, and I bet it's the same anywhere in the universe. Second, Kevin Feige said later that it was all life, right? 
So that means you kill half the humans and half the animals and half the plants and half the fish. So how exactly does that fix the problem? That puts us right back where we started, except the only resources you've got more of is space. Maybe. Except the ground is dead now, so growing food is going to be pretty difficult. It's just for all that Thanos thinks about this, he's never considered the fact that he's just causing massive harm and destruction for no reason. I think the only thing different between Thanos when he was on Gamora's planet and Thanos when he got all the stones is that back then in the past he could decide who was worthy but with the stones there's no deciding so what if you end up killing all the scientists all the doctors all the farmers like buddy what are you doing or maybe Thanos is just a lunatic maybe I'll say every boy that I met in econ in undergrad and in grad school and in high school was a lunatic so fair okay how do you how do you follow that up you just keep going the benatar arrives at nowhere which appears to be deserted quill gamora drax and mantis make their way to the collector's lair where they see thanos interrogating him for the location of the reality stone gamora runs out and appears to kill thanos but the entire scenario is revealed to be an illusion concocted by thanos who had already taken possession of the reality stone by the time the guardians had arrived and had absolutely destroyed nowhere in the process he takes gamora but is then confronted by quill who reluctantly attempts to fulfill his promise to Gamora to kill her. But Thanos uses the reality stone to render his weapon useless. He then uses the space stone to whisk Gamora and himself away from nowhere. Ah, the boyfriend. I like to think of myself as more of a titan-killing long-term booty call. I just noticed that when the Guardians are sneaking up on Thanos, you can hear him talking to the Collector. And if you have subtitles on, you can see that Thanos is telling him that everyone knows you'd sell your own brother to add another trinket to your collection, which is a nice little touch since we know that the Collector and the Grandmaster are brothers. Kevin Feige hopes to see them in a movie together one day. We shall see. At the Avengers compound, Colonel James Rhodey Rhodes is being grilled by Secretary Thaddeus Ross via hollow projection about Vision being last detected over Edinburgh in the rogue Avengers stolen Quinjet. Rhodey expresses his regret at having signed the Sokovia Accords and tells Ross that if not for the Accords, Vision would be right there. Steve Rogers and company walk in, and Ross takes the opportunity to be a jerk to them. He orders Rhodey to arrest them. Rhodey blows him off and kills the transmission before welcoming his old friends clearly very glad to see them after two years. I'm not looking for forgiveness, and I'm way past asking permission. Classic Cap. Love it. Love it, love it, love it. Plus, this scene gives us the reunion of Bruce and Natasha, such as it is, before their relationship is completely forgotten about in the rest of all the Marvel movies. It's like Marcus and McFeely wanted to just ditch the Natasha-Bruce thing, but felt like they had to at least acknowledge it for a moment. So they wrote this one scene, and then the two never do anything with each other ever again. And I'm sure that just breaks your little heart, doesn't it, Emily? That is a joke, right? <laughs> The reunited, Tony-less Avengers start planning how to deal with Thanos when he arrives. We discover that Clint Barton and Scott Lang, as we just saw in Ant-Man and the Wasp, took plea bargains to get them house arrest so they could be with their families. Since her energy output is powerful and of a type related to the stone, Vision advocates for having Wanda destroy the Mind Stone, even if it means his own destruction. Bruce posits that Vision's whole being is made up of a complex overlay of Jarvis, Ultron, Tony, the Stone, and himself, not just the stone. Thus, if they could find some way to carefully remove the stone, a significant amount of vision might still remain viable. Bruce says he can't do it. Steve says he knows who can. Cut to Wakanda 
where T'Challa and Okoye are approaching the inhabitant of a small hut. This one may be tired of war, but the White Wolf has rested long enough. T'Challa has come to present Bucky Barnes with a new vibranium arm and to let him know that a fight is on its way to Wakanda. Yeah, 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 yeah. I love the addition of T'Challa and Wakanda in this movie. I think they did it super well. I kind of wish this... No, I don't. I was going to say I kind of wish this movie could be like Black Panther round two, but I'm good enough with it being like Black Panther round one and a half because you do spend a lot of time in Wakanda in this movie. Yeah, like half the movie takes place there. Yeah. No shout out to your boy Bucky. He's in the movie for like, what, two, three scenes? There's not really a whole lot to go off of. Yeah, but Unfortunately. Still. <laughs> Aboard his Q-ship, Ebony Maw tortures Strange in an attempt to get him to relinquish the Time Stone. On a level overlooking all of this, Tony, Parker, and the Cloak of Levitation find each other and work on a plan for rescuing Strange. Tony blasts a hole in the hull blowing Maw out into space while Parker keeps Strange from flying out too. The Q-ship is on autopilot back to Thanos. Strange wants to head back to Earth, but Tony thinks they should bring the fight to Thanos for the element of surprise, if nothing else. The two argue momentarily, and Strange ultimately relents, but he makes it clear that he will do anything to protect the Time Stone, including sacrificing Tony and Parker. Tony acknowledges this, then turns to Parker and formally dubs him an Avenger. I think we talked briefly about this during our Doctor Strange review, about the impending clash of two of the biggest egos in the MCU. Well, the wait is over, folks. Honestly, I love that Strange and Stark hate each other, like, immediately. But I also love that in this scene, at least, they have to also deal with the fact that Peter is just so, like, annoyingly there. I think if Peter weren't there, they'd be throwing hands, but because he is, it almost feels like they think they have to be professional about things. I also really like how Tony knights Peter into the Avengers. That always makes me laugh. Aboard Sanctuary 2, Gamora tells Thanos how everything she hates about herself she owes to him, starting with the murder of half of her home planet. Thanos insists that it was a small sacrifice so that the rest could live fruitfully, and that he is the only one who recognizes that his mission is the only thing that will save the universe, instantly reducing demand for resources by killing half of its population. It's a simple calculus, he says. He's so dumb. It's so frustrating. <laughs> this isn't how resources or resource distribution works, my dude. Thanos would benefit from at least one person on his team playing Devil's Advocate. Would you really want to play Devil's Advocate to Thanos? You know what? I would. Have you met me? <laughs> oh, God. Thanos then tells her that he knows she found the Soul Stone and kept that information from him. He takes Gamora to a chamber where Nebula is suspended in the air, many of her pieces separated from her. Thanos uses the stones to torture Nebula by ripping those pieces away from her. Gamora continues to deny. Thanos forces Nebula to show a video image taken of the two sisters discussing the location of the Soul Stone, including Gamora's revelation that she knows where it is. He tortures Nebula even more. Gamora finally cannot bear the horrific screams coming from her sister, who is essentially being drawn and quartered. So she breaks down and tells Thanos that the Soul Stone is on a planet called Vormir. Another really strong outing from Zoe Saldana as Gamora. Uh, absolutely no question in my mind that she consistently offers a solid performance every single time. Her work in Guardians 2 and this are particularly noteworthy. Such a complex character with so many dimensions to her, and Saldana, you know, shows us every one of those aspects very believably. But I also have to give a shout out to Karen Gillan as Nebula. We'll see more from her later in this film and in Endgame, but for now, 
Man, can she give an absolutely, unbelievably chilling, blood-curdling scream. As Thor, Rocket, and Groot continue in their pod towards Nidavellir, Rocket, who apparently has his doubts, has a little heart-to-heart with Thor in an attempt to probe his mental state and see if he's really up to the challenge of Thanos. Thor takes Rocket on a tour of all of his recent losses, but assures him that revenge has cleared his mind and will keep him sharp. You know, this just might be the best scene in the entire film for me. It also just might be the single best Thor scene Chris Hemsworth has ever done. It's like the logical continuation of his introspective scenes in Ragnarok, only the stakes and circumstances are obviously much higher and more grave this time around. You know, he says that he's 1,500 years old and that Thanos is just the next in a long line of people whom fate has destined him to smite. And what if you're wrong, posits Rocket. And then Thor replies, oh, that if I'm wrong, what more could I lose? It's a really powerful moment that highlights just how fatalistic, dare I say, resigned Thor has become in this film. This is the first moment that he's had to grieve in the entire film after everything that's happened, and he is clearly still processing it all. Another thing I love about this scene, Rocket sits and listens. No backtalk, no snappy comebacks, he just listens quietly. One thing that's interesting about Thor, I think, is the darker his story goes, the funnier and more absurd everything else becomes. Like with Ragnarok, there was so much color, so many tricks and games and so much just general chaos compared to the first two movies when the story was lighter, I guess, like easier to get through and easier to handle. And the more it becomes like traumatizing, the sillier everything else gets. I guess I'm a little confused. Would you say Ragnarok was darker or lighter? Because Lighter. Whole, like his, well, the- his story <laughs> is becoming darker. Like the whole thing about his, like his dad dying and Hela and the idea of Ragnarok, but the story, it, the movie itself was so absurd and like entertaining and funny. While it felt like the first Thor movie and Thor: The Dark World, the movies felt darker, but the storyline, like what was happening to Thor, wasn't as intense. Gotcha. He was kind of less, <laughs> less heavily invested. Yeah, I guess so. To replace the one lost to Hela, Rocket gives Thor an eye that he stole from some guy on Contraxia. As they approach Nidavellir, it quickly becomes apparent that something is wrong. The neutron star that powers its forge has gone out, and the whole place appears abandoned. They land, and discover that Thanos has killed all but Itri, king of the dwarves of Nidavellir, the makers of legendary weapons such as Mjolnir. Thanos forced Itri to make a gauntlet to harness the power of the Infinity Stones before killing the other dwarves and cutting off Itri's hands. Itri agrees to make a weapon that can kill Thanos, but first they need to find a way to restart the Neutron Star so it can power the forge. Meanwhile, Nebula escapes from Sanctuary 2 and sends a message to Mantis, telling the Guardians to meet her on Titan, Thanos' homeworld. The Guardians arrive there just as Tony, Strange, and Parker arrive there too, their Q-ship apparently having been pre-programmed to go there. After a brief case of mistaken identity, Tony, the Peters, Drax, and Mantis try, with great difficulty, to come up with a plan to get the gauntlet off of Thanos, who is apparently headed for Titan per Nebula. While they are bickering, Strange uses the Time Stone to go forward in time and view over 14 million possible outcomes of the coming conflict with Thanos. Out of all of them, there is only one in which the good guys win. Remember, I'm half human, so that 50% of me that's stupid, that's 100% you. 
quite possibly my favorite line of the entire film. I also really like that line. I also love that little bit about Strange asking Quill what master he serves, and Quill is like, oh, so I'm supposed to say Jesus? And Tony is immediately like, oh, this dude's from Earth. Hello. For some reason, it's so funny to me. Like, of course Jesus is specific to Earth. Thanos and Gamora arrive on Vormir and begin climbing a massive outcropping, the summit of which is believed to be where the Soul Stone resides. As they approach the summit, they are confronted by a mysterious floating robed figure who identifies them by their names and by their father's names. It is my curse to know all who journey here. The figure also tells Thanos that the Soul Stone exacts a terrible price. The figure reveals itself to be none other than the Red Skull who disappeared into a vortex created by the Tesseract while battling Captain America on Earth more than 70 years earlier in Captain America the First Avenger. The Red Skull leads them to the top of the outcropping, where towering twin stone pillars overlook a deep chasm. He indicates that the stone demands a sacrifice. In order to claim it, you must lose that which you love, a soul for a soul. At first, Gamora is overjoyed, believing that Thanos loves nothing, and therefore cannot get the stone. That is, until she realizes that the tears he sheds are not for himself, but for her. She tries to kill herself, but Thanos stops her. Thanos grabs her and hurls her into the chasm and to her death. Energy erupts from the pillars into the sky. Moments later, Thanos awakes in a pool of water at the base of the outcropping with the soul stone in his hand. I don't know. There's a part of me that wants to call BS on the Soul Stone here. So it knows that Thanos genuinely loves Gamora, or so I would presume, if it's going to let him have it. Yet from everything we know, he has this sick, twisted relationship with her based on fear, control, and intimidation, which hardly sounds like real love to me. I mean, he freaking killed her. So so how does that compute? I, I just don't understand how the stone works. I mean, you have to kill the person you love to get the stone, so somewhere within him, the love must be real, or at least he thinks it's real, which is powerful enough. If the only person Thanos actually loves other than himself is Gamora, and the Soul Stone sees that, it doesn't really matter if Gamora or the audience thinks that's true. It only matters what Thanos thinks is true. I also think the whole back and forth about the Soul Stone is kind of nonsense too, but that's kind of how I would explain it. Also... If Red Skull has only been in charge of this, whatever this is, for 70 years, who was in charge before? Mm. Questions, questions, questions. I still think that they're going to touch up on this at some point, on Disney Plus perhaps. I'm still holding out hope that we'll see Chris Evans' Cap one last time in a Cap returning the Infinity Stones series on Disney Plus or something like that, in which we get the full story behind the Red Skull. Cap, Natasha, Sam, Wanda, Vision, Rhodey, and Bruce land in Wakanda and are greeted by T'Challa, Okoye, and Bucky. They take Vision to Shuri's lab, where she determines that she can remove the Mind Stone from his head, but it will take time. We can't skip over my second favorite line, which is when T'Challa and Okoye are talking about opening Wakanda, and Okoye says this wasn't exactly what she had his had in mind, and T'Challa's like, well, what did you want? And she goes, the Olympics, maybe a Starbucks. Emily loves her Starbucks. And the Olympics. <laughs> Oh, that's right. I, I, I understand all of the various moral quandaries about the Olympics. You don't have to remind me, but I really like the Olympics. What would I have liked? I don't know. Are there comic book shops in Wakanda? I wonder. I'm sure. I'm sure there's Wakandan comics. There have to be. That would be really cool. <laughs> Wakandan comics. That would be awesome. So it'll take Shuri some time to get the Mind Stone out of Vision's head. 
That's a problem, because while they are talking, several landing craft containing an invasion force by Thanos begin descending upon Wakanda from space. Some are destroyed by the shield protecting the city, but several land outside the shield perimeter. Wanda stays behind so she can destroy the stone once it is removed, while the rest of the Avengers head out to help the Wakandans defend the city. Bruce is using Tony's Hulkbuster armor, and T'Challa's forces are joined by M'Baku and the Jabari. Proxima Midnight and Cullobsidian are leading the invasion force, which consists of thousands of outriders, mindless alien space dogs subservient to Thanos, who launch themselves at the city's shield en masse. While most are killed, some make it through and are repelled by the Wakandans and the Avengers. Many of them circle around the shield to the other side of the city, however, which is a problem, because if any of them get through, they'll be able to reach Vision and the Stone unimpeded. To keep the majority of the Outriders in front of them and away from Vision, T'Challa orders the section of the shield in front of them lowered. The Outriders pour in, while the Avengers and Wakandans charge them. I am a total sucker for any scene in a movie where there's an army of people charging and screaming. Even more so when Black Panther and Captain America carrying a Wakandan shield are running to the front of that army to deal out some punishment. I approve wholeheartedly. <laughs> Meanwhile, a Nidavellir, with Thor and a very large rope acting as a grappling hook, he and Rocket are able to use the pod to restart the Dwarf Star and the Forge. Unfortunately, the iris that regulates the entry of Starlight into the Forge has broken and won't let anything in. Thor has no choice but to hold the iris open himself for the few minutes Itri needs the heat from the star. He does so, letting the neutron star's energy pass through the iris, and him, and into the forge, melting the Uru, which is, for all you non-comics fans, the metal from which Mjolnir was made. After only moments of being subjected to the full energy of a star, Thor lapses into unconsciousness and is blown into the forge, his body charred to a crisp. The melted Uru flows into the mold and hardens. Itri breaks the mold, revealing the head of the axe Stormbreaker. Only a finished axe will save Thor, so Groot wraps one of his arms around the axe head and chops it off, forming the handle. The finished axe begins to crackle with lightning and levitate as Thor slowly begins to move one of his hands. Cut back to Wakanda, where the heroes are being overrun by the Outriders. Suddenly, Rocket Groot and Thor, now wielding Stormbreaker, which can summon the Bifrost, arrive in Wakanda. You understand, boy, you're about to take the full force of a star. It'll kill you. Only if I die. Yes, that's what killing you means. <laughs> I love that. Thanos arrives on Titan and is greeted by Doctor Strange, sitting in what appears to be the ruins of a city. They chat for a bit, Thanos telling Strange how this... Titan, his home planet, was once a paradise, and that when it faced extinction, he offered up a solution, genocide. He was, of course, labeled a madman, and before long, his world died. Now he pledges to use the Infinity Stones to make half of the universe cease to exist with the snap of his fingers. Insert another rant from Emily right about here. Just two things this time. Only two? Only two? A, yeah man, nobody wants to be genocided, duh. And B, what do you think Thanos would do if he ran into a planet or society that didn't have resource problems? Like, essentially a utopia? Do you think he'd still cut them in half, or do you think he'd leave it be? Uh, okay, wait, actually, hold on, I have a third. C, I, <laughs> I guess. Um, do you think Thanos would accept someone being killed for the sake of someone else to live? Like, if it came down to him living or someone else, would he take the hit? 
I'm guessing probably not, but like he's so convinced that it's just numbers that's the problem. So at some point, he could be the person that's one too many. It's like, you know, Bob Jones or whatever, you know, the cult leader that's willing to sacrifice everybody else. But when the opportunity presents itself for themselves to be sacrificed, they conveniently find a way to not let that happen. Well, because they're the 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 prophet or the god or whatever. And that's what Thanos considers himself. He he always talks about fate, and and he considers himself the universe's savior. So, yeah, of course, he's too important to sacrifice. I read something somewhere recently, maybe I shared it with you, I can't remember, where the writer posited that if indeed the snap wiped out half of all living things, not just animals, everyone who remained (laughs) would suddenly (laughs) have crippling and punishing diarrhea because half of their intestinal flora would be wiped out. (laughs) Someone with a myriad gastrointestinal problems myself, this rather terrifies me. If that were the case, it would almost make me want to be one of the ones who gets dusted. Because I guess that would also mean that, like, half of my probiotic supplements would disappear too. (laughs) Hadn't thought about that. Suddenly, Tony drops a large piece of debris on Thanos from above. Thanos uses the stones to remove the debris. Tony, Parker, Strange, Quill, and Drax gang up on him, each attempting to get in some licks in turn. Nebula crashes into him with a stolen Saccharin ship and joins the fight. With Strange restraining one of his arms with the crimson bands of Sidorak, the other arm restrained with one of Quill's gravity mines, Parker webbing his torso and Drax holding a leg, Mantis portals in from above and attempts to put Thanos to sleep. He begins to lapse into a semi-conscious state, but Mantis doesn't know for how long she can keep it up. As Tony and Parker try to remove the gauntlet, Quill tries to extract Gamora's location from him. Mantis tells them that he is in anguish and that he mourns. Quill and Nebula put two and two together and figure out that Thanos has killed Gamora. Quill begins wailing on Thanos in rage, which breaks Mantis' concentration and wakes Thanos just as Parker is about to remove the gauntlet. Thanos shakes off his attackers and secures the gauntlet, which he then uses to bring pieces of Titan's moon down upon them. He brought down a freaking moon on them. (laughs) Plus, I love the use of portals to pop in and out when attacking Thanos. And I really love that scene where Quill is hopping on Strange's uh, shield discs. I thought that was awesome. I really like the scene for Quill. I think Chris Pratt does mad slash dark stuff really well. I think we have may have talked about this before. I also think it's interesting to see Tony try and stop Quill from freaking out. Like in the past, Tony would do exactly what Quill is doing, has done exactly what Quill is doing. You know, not seeing past his own rage and anguish to see the bigger picture. And I don't know if they would have gotten the gauntlet off Thanos with their own strength, but I do know that Quill's tantrum sure didn't help. I like that observation you made about Tony, because it's like everything after Avengers related to the future big bad coming to invade the Earth or whatever, Thanos has sobered him up in so many ways. He sees the bigger picture and he remains a little bit better focused, maybe manically so but at least he kind of knows not to do the kind of stupid, infantile, sophomoric stuff that that Quill does. Well, I think for Tony, it's only working really because it isn't personal for him. (laughs) Like, it's personal in the sense that he wants the universe Mm -hmm. to not get exploded, but it's not like the fight that he had with Bucky and Steve. The fight he he had with Bucky and Steve, he knew he was wrong, and he still did it anyway, and it's the same with Quill. It's personal for him in that he carries the weight of the the world slash universe on his shoulders, but it's, yeah, I get it, it's not personal like Thanos didn't kill Pepper or yeah you know so I think like Tony obviously has like a moral high ground only because it's not his loved one on the line but it is it is interesting that it's like Tony you just did exactly this 
and essentially ruined a friendship mm. and an important alliance over it and essentially led us to here, you know, with the Avengers separated. That scene, you know, back at the Sanctum Sanctorum at the beginning of the movie, you do kind of get shades of Tony reevaluating that decision, at least in his own mind. I mean, you know, the beginning of Endgame when he returns to Earth, he at least verbally feels a little bit different and he kind of shifts back to the whole, you know, I wanted to put a suit of armor around the world thing, but you weren't there when he complains to Steve. But yeah, I can't help but wonder if maybe he's he's starting to wonder. Was maybe that I shouldn't move? be such a baby about things. <laughs> maybe, yeah, maybe I shouldn't be such a dick. In Wakanda, the tide appears to have turned in the hero's favor until the dropships release this massive multi-bladed buzzsaw kind of weapon that travels underground, thus bypassing the shield, and tears up the earth. Wanda abandons her post guarding Vision and Shuri to fly to the battlefield and destroy the weapon. With Wanda gone, Corvus Glaive makes his way into Shuri's lab and incapacitates her and the Dora Milaje standing guard there. Vision, still injured and with the stones still in his head, engages Glaive and tumbles out a window with him. They fight in the woods. Obsidian joins the fight and is ready to finish off Vision when Bruce arrives in the Hulkbuster and kills Obsidian. Glaive stabs Vision for the second time in this movie and is about to land the killing blow when Cap arrives and takes him on. Glaive is about to finish him off when he is skewered from behind by Vision. Meanwhile, Proxima Midnight takes on Wanda, Natasha, and Okoye. She's about to kill Natasha when Wanda levitates her into the air and into the path of another oncoming buzzsaw thingy where she gets chopped to bits. Nice. <laughs> I also like when Okoye is like, why was she up there all this time about Wanda? And it immediately cuts to the exact reason why Wanda was up there all that time. Yeah, that's, 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 a, that's a good point. That whole bit when, you know, Proxima Midnight is like, she's on the field, go now. Like, they were just kind of waiting for her to leave the lab. No one can direct action set pieces like the Russo brothers do. They are so good at breaking down a massive battle into discrete chunks that you can follow with relative ease. Even with all the jump cutting, you always know what's going on at any given moment and how it relates to every other moment. It's like the opposite of that wretched last hour of Thor the Dark World where everything is just kind of a total mess. On Titan, Strange takes on Thanos all by himself, employing everything in his mystical arsenal. Blasts, shields, the mirror dimension, multiple astral projections, the crimson bands of Sidorak, but to no avail. Thanos with four infinity stones is just too powerful, and he overpowers Strange. He takes the Eye of Agamotto, only to find the time stone gone. That leaves Tony the last man standing. He pours absolutely everything that nanotech suit has into Thanos, but it's not enough. Thanos begins to pummel Tony, and the suit actually begins to disintegrate. As a last resort, Tony generates a nanotech sword and attacks Thanos with it. Thanos parries the blow, breaks off the tip of the sword, and stabs Tony with it. He's about to finish off Tony when Strange, inexplicably, offers to give Thanos the Time Stone if he spares Tony's life. He makes the stone appear out of nowhere and gives it to Thanos, who promptly departs using the Space Stone. Tony, whose wound is serious but apparently not imminently mortal, he's using that spray foam stuff from his suit to seal it, asks Strange why he gave the stone to Thanos. Strange simply replies, we're in the endgame now. In Wakanda, Thanos' forces are in full retreat, with Thor taking out several of the fleeing dropships himself. Vision begins to feel the Mind Stone pinging at him again, 
and the rest of the heroes see, feel, and hear an eerie stirring of the air as they form up on Cap and Vision. Moments later, Thanos appears. I know obviously that so much of this movie is CGI and done on sound stages with green screens and everything, but Thanos just looked so fake right then. Like, coming through the clouds into Wakanda. It's like they made Wakanda look so real, and they did that so well, but then only put, like, half the effort into Thanos. That and all the weird slow-mo fighting of, like, everyone getting tossed by the energy, I, I don't know. I just think it doesn't look that good to me. I guess this is my own sort of hot take. While I don't think it looks horrible, I've actually never really thought that the Thanos CGI ever looked like really good it's it was never it's never i never like oh it looks really crappy but it's not exactly rocking my world it's not like the dinosaurs in jurassic park or anything like that it just i just kind of accept it it's like okay yeah it's thanos you know he doesn't look like amazing to me i don't know maybe that's not a hot take i don't see, i don't hear a lot of people ever talking about that it's like okay i know it's thanos he looks cool enough but i just you know it still looks very obviously animated to me I mean, he looks better than he did in the first Avengers movie. Like, he looked oh. just like trash in that movie. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, it was six years. But not <laughs> six years earlier. But not a ton of improvement, just like enough improvement that he doesn't look the way he did back then. <laughs> Vision implores Wanda to destroy the Mind Stone before it's too late. Although it absolutely guts her, Wanda reluctantly complies and begins to fire her energy at the stone in Vision's head while the rest of the Avengers try unsuccessfully to fight off Thanos. With no one left to defend her, Wanda fends off Thanos even as she works to destroy the stone. Vision tells Wanda that he loves her before the stone shatters, causing a massive explosion in the forest. You know, if we ever do a top five saddest moments in the MCU, I would be hard-pressed to not include that one. Uh, the sheer anguish on Elizabeth Olsen's face just kind of speaks volumes. Despite Vision's sacrifice, it seems for a moment as if the universe is saved. But then Wanda, already devastated by what she's just done, can only watch as Thanos uses the newly acquired Time Stone to reverse her actions and rip the Mind Stone from Vision's head. Vision's body turns gray and goes limp as Thanos completes the Infinity Gauntlet with the Mind Stone. Obviously, <laughs> Thanos is awful and terrible in general, but interpersonally, like out of all of his one-on-one -on -one interactions, I think this one by far is the most awful. To say that he understands what Wanda has lost, whether or not he really loved Gamora, and then to rewind time only to kill the person she just killed to try and stop him, I think stuff like this is what makes him truly awful and evil. That he's just like, oh, I sympathize with you, teehee, but I'm still gonna rewind time and kill your guy to get what I need. Oops. It's so awful. Not awful in a bad, but awful in a like, wow, that's so evil. No, oh, he's a lunatic. I mean, clearly anyone who proposes genocide as the solution to overpopulation and scarcity of resources is a certified nut job. Suddenly, Thanos is hit with a bolt of lightning from Thor flying above, who then hurls Stormbreaker at him, impaling him in the chest. Thor lands and drives the axe further into Thanos's chest. Thanos, seemingly defeated, looks at Thor and tells him that he should have gone for the head. Thor can only look on in shock as Thanos snaps the fingers of his gauntlet hand. There's a blinding flash of light. We then see Thanos standing in shallow water in a place bathed in orange-reddish light. He sees a very young Gamora standing in the structure on her homeworld where he first met her. She asks him if he did it, and he replies in the affirmative. What did it cost? She asks. Everything, replies Thanos. Cut back to Wakanda, where the Infinity Gauntlet and large portions of Thanos' body appear severely burned. He uses the Space Stone to teleport away. Stormbreaker falls at Thor's feet, as the sound of distant thunder can be heard. As the Avengers look around in bewilderment, 
Bucky turns to dust on the field of battle. M'Baku watches as Wakandan warriors begin turning to dust and Wakandan aircraft crash into the ground. A horrified Okoye sees T'Challa turn to dust. Rocket watches Groot turn to dust. Wanda turns to dust as she hovers over Vision's lifeless corpse. We see Rhodey calling out to Sam, just barely missing Sam turn to dust. Cap, Natasha, Rhodey, Bruce, and Rocket gather around Vision's body, completely unable to process what's just happened. On Titan... Mantis says she senses something happening, then turns to dust, followed in rapid succession by Drax and Quill. Strange calls out to Tony and tells him there was no other way before turning to dust himself. Parker staggers over to Tony, sensing that he's next. He tells Tony he's sorry before turning to dust. He did it, mutters Nebula, as she and Tony sit down in shock, unable to do or say anything else. I don't want to go, Mr. Stark. I don't know what's happening. I don't want to go. <laughs> finally, so sad. finally, we cut to Thanos, who smiles as he watches the sun rise on an unnamed alien world. In a post credit scene, we see Nick Fury and Maria Hill driving through a city, discussing the missing Tony and the multiple craft sighted over Wakanda. A car swerves in front of them, and they just narrowly avoid hitting it. They get out and notice that there's no driver in the other vehicle. Suddenly, a helicopter spins out of control and collides with a skyscraper. Fury turns to Hill and watches her turn to dust. He runs to the car and fetches a familiar, well, familiar to us since we've been watching these in chronological order, pager. As he activates it, he turns to dust, and the pager falls to the ground. The pager reads, sending, before changing into an image. The symbol of Carol Danvers, Captain Marvel. Fans of the original Infinity Gauntlet comic book miniseries back in the early 90s probably expected the snap to happen in some capacity in this film. And yet, I don't think that takes away from the absolutely emotional roller coaster slash gut punch that is the last 10 minutes of this film. I mean, we have to watch Vision die twice. The first time poignantly by Wanda's reluctant hand, and the second time very violently by Thanos' hand. Then we have to watch some of our favorite heroes get dusted. Peter Parker. I mean, what hasn't been said about this scene with him already? Uh, Tom Holland, I, as I understand it, ad-libbed the words, I don't want to go, and it made the scene that much more gripping and harder to watch because, you know, dying is one thing. Dying in that kind of fear is just horrible. And then the credits start rolling and it's like, that's it? The bad guy won? And you're sitting in the theater watching the credits because you know something else is coming. But also you're in shock. It's a devastating ending. But I love the fact that it made me feel that way. It and the entire MCU prior to it, I suppose had me so fully invested in these characters and this story that it was kind of like watching some good friends die. And I think that's good filmmaking and good storytelling. And despite all of that, at the very end, those of us comics fans who, who knew what that symbol was on Nick Fury's pager, we still get at the very end, amid all of that death and destruction, we get a rush of energy, we get a boost, a glimmer of hope, because we knew that Captain Marvel was on the way. So that is... That is the recap of Avengers Infinity War. This is the part of the show where we talk about characters and actors. And I think, as I understand it, it was always kind of the intention, with a couple of exceptions, for the OG Avengers to not get a ton of screen time in Infinity War because they knew that they were going to be getting a lot of it in Endgame. So they tended to focus on some of the characters that don't appear quite as much in Endgame. So we'll probably be talking about most of the OG crowd, not very much. But one of those two exceptions I referred to earlier is, of course, always going to be Robert Downey Jr. 
as Tony Stark slash Iron Man, there was always going to be a lot for Tony to do because he's RDJ. His performance is great, as it always is. Uh, it's not a real surprise. What I like the most about Tony in this film is that we finally get to see him have to confront the big bad from outer space. The thing that's been giving him nightmares since Avengers. The thing that traumatized him in Iron Man 3. The thing that compelled him to build Ultron and to sign the Sokovia Accords which ultimately led to the breakup of the Avengers, that's all finally here, and we see him have to face that at long last. I actually think I do like Tony in this movie. I think I like him a lot in this movie, actually. And I think it's because there are so many instances where we are sort of seeing situations play out again. In the first Avengers movie, when he flies into space with the nuke and Pepper calls and he doesn't answer. Or no, she he calls her. And she doesn't answer because she's busy watching, right? And in this one, she calls him and he picks up. Like, I think it's interesting to see the switch. And then again, when Quill was wailing on Thanos, Tony already knew. Like, he already had the past experience of, like, I've done this before, man, at a much, like, smaller scale problem. And it got us here. Like, this is a mistake. We have to see the bigger picture. So I think this is actually a movie where maybe we're not seeing a lot of growth in the movie specifically, but I think there has been a lot of growth in between movies for Tony. I think he's realized, like, all right, if Pepper calls, I got to pick up. And now that he's realized that his sort of me, me, me focused behavior, I think finally, finally it's settling in on him that, that like, that's going to cause some problems, guy. You can't only focus on yourself. So I think actually this is a really good outing for him. And I think, like, like you said, it's RDJ. He's going to get a lot of the attention. Yeah. The other OG Avenger that I think gets a lot of screen time in this one, and I think appropriately is Chris Hemsworth as Thor. Uh, I've said this before. I personally think that this is his finest performance as Thor so far in all of the MCU. You know, Love and Thunder will be out by the time this uh, show drops, so we'll, we'll find out and maybe that supersedes it. I doubt it. I, 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 just, I really love Thor in this film because it I mean, look what's happened. He has lost everything. He's lost everything. And I keep coming back to that scene in the pod with him and Rocket. This really down-to-earth, introspective, I've lost all this, you know, I guess I'll just keep going. You know, I'm 1,500 years old, and, you know, I've just kind of always, every bad guy has just kind of been another one for me to kill, and now I'm not so sure. We kind of got the a more sort of thoughtful Thor in Ragnarok, but this is like thoughtfulness weighed down by the death of pretty much everyone, almost everyone you know. And he's the driving force behind this movie, and he wants revenge on Thanos, and then at the very end, he he doesn't get it. You're just kind of left thinking, oh my God, I love Chris Hemsworth in this movie a lot. I mean, if anyone does have a bone to pick with Thanos, it's Thor. Like, granted, it's kind of his dad's, well, not his dad's fault, because Thor is the one who loses Loki on the Bifrost. Although it's kind of Loki. It's It was so long ago. I can't even remember what happened. <laughs> Thanos coming to Earth the first time is related to Thor. Thanos rolling up again is also related to Thor. It's kind of sad that the most carefree sort of silly Avenger is the one who's sort of the catalyst for all of the terrible things that are happening. Mm -hmm. Like it's Tony's behavior that gets them there, but Thor's just very existence is the, <laughs> is the catalyst of the thing that causes the problems. 
Mark Ruffalo as Bruce Banner slash the Hulk. I really kind of like the fact that we only get like two minutes of Hulk in this entire movie and the rest of Mark Ruffalo's performance is all as Bruce Banner. Uh, there was just something very refreshing about that. We get almost nothing but Bruce. Such an urgency to everything. I mean, he's like, my God, Thanos is coming. I've seen what this guy can do. Kind of like, I don't want to say panicked version of Tony, but Tony's response to this is sort of a very sober, okay, let's do what we got to do. And you know, meanwhile, Bruce is a little more like, Thanos is coming. You don't see how crazy this guy is. This is terrible. Why don't you call Steve? And, you know, I think it's almost more like, you know, Bruce almost represents kind of what uh, how a normal human <laughs> would react to the news of this galactic conqueror heading towards Earth. I like him in this movie, but I think my favorite outing may still be the first Avengers movie. OK, I can see that. Chris Evans as Steve Rogers slash Captain America. I know, of course, that the movie was busy and lots of stuff had to happen and... You know, Thor and Tony, I think, are the main players, like the main driving force behind why we are where we are. And, you know, there's different places and people and you have to make it to various spots at just the right time for everything to flow. But I still think that Steve doesn't get enough airtime in this movie. And I'll say that about Bucky, too. Like, again, I know the two of them aren't really vital to the Thanos storyline, they're vital to the team. I don't even think Steve talks that much in this movie. I think if you, someone once told me if you have him read all his lines and you time it, it only ends up being like six to ten minutes of screen time. But I, I think, you know, knowing that they were not going to focus on the OG Avengers as much, I accepted what little we got from Steve. It was neat to see the dark, grim Steve Rogers for a change of pace. Uh, I suppose it would have been nice to know more about the two missing years that he and you know, Natasha and Sam and all them were on the run. I guess we'll just have to leave that up to our imaginations. Scarlett Johansson as Natasha Romanoff slash the Black Widow. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, she didn't, yeah, I mean, she didn't, I she just didn't like, have much to do. I think there are going to be a lot of characters that, like, the movie was good, and I think it's good because the plot was driving it. I don't necessarily think it was good because the characters were driving it. Yeah, it's a very plot-driven film, and Natasha doesn't have a lot to do. Yeah. So I guess we don't have much to say about her. Benedict Cumberbatch as Dr. Stephen Strange. I think this was the first time I saw Stephen Strange because I hadn't seen the the movies. You saw Infinity War before Dr. Strange. Yeah. Wow. Because I never I never watched Dr. Strange. And I think that may be the reason why I liked him in this movie a lot. I liked that he was sort of an antagonist to Tony because I didn't know anything about his background. But also just because I kind of really like the dedication to the time stone it would be harder to understand that he would give it up but again i think before when he said i'm not going to give up the stone for you or peter but he hadn't gone through all of the you know millions of options at that point 14 million of them and he wasn't giving it up for the sake of tony or peter's life he was giving it up for everybody else's life so mm -hmm. when I watched it, I thought that was a really cool, like, hero move. I, I love Strange in this movie because it's not the first time we see Strange after his uh, first solo outing. That would be Thor Ragnarok, but it, he was only in that for the equivalent of a few minutes. And we do see him do a few neat tricks, but this is the first time we see him as the Sorcerer Supreme or the Master of the Mystic Arts. We see how much he has grown. He has all these powers, and he knows how to use them very well now. And he takes the, his job of protecting the earth as you alluded to with all the time stone stuff really seriously you see him emerging as a very important voice in the defenders of the earth 
in the MCU at this point. And of course, it's just cool to see him do, you know how much I love Doctor Strange. It's so cool to see him do all that stuff at the end. I mean, you see how really powerful he is. And yet, despite all of that, he still can't beat Thanos. The The interactions with Tony, I enjoyed as well. These two big egos kind of clashing with each other. But it also kind of demonstrates how much growth he's gone through because he's kind of doesn't act as much like Tony anymore because he realizes he can't afford to for the sake of the world and the universe while Tony still just kind of is Tony and it's like suddenly you know Strange tends to be the adult in the room which I find rather amusing Don Cheadle as Colonel James Rhodey Rhodes slash War Machine I like that he stood up to Ross I like that he stood up to Ross, too. Uh, the one thing I, I notice about Rhodey in, in this movie, the, the very first shot of him when he's talking to Ross, and he just looks so defeated. I mean, the look on his face is just like, it's like everything is just turned to complete crap. And then after he blows off Ross, and he greets Cap and uh, Natasha and Sam, and it's like, this, his whole demeanor just changes. He kind of regrets signing the Sokovia Accords. He's realizing that may not have been the best move. And then when he sees, you know, his old colleagues come back, I mean, it's like there's a smile on his face. He, he looks really, really happy to see them. Tom Holland as Peter Parker slash Spider-Man. Why don't you start? Um, I'm not going to say much because, to be honest, he's, he also isn't in the movie a ton. But I think one of the lines we didn't talk about that I really liked was when Tony finds out that he's stowed away on the Q-ship, he's like... Um, you can't be a friendly neighborhood Spider-Man if there's no neighborhood. And yeah. it kind of passes off as a joke, but he's right. Like He's absolutely right. He totally has the right to be there because whether or not he is helpful, and he definitely is helpful, but whether or not he would have been, it's reasonable to see that this danger is not just a danger to the universe, but it's a danger to your little universe right here, like the neighborhood. <laughs> Yeah, and I think Tony realizes that. Probably knew that all along anyway. I mean, he was ready to make him an Avenger in Homecoming. Yeah, I think Tony recognizes kind of quietly that Peter has a lot to contribute. Chadwick Boseman as T'Challa slash the Black Panther. We don't see a whole lot of Black Panther in this movie. Obviously, he plays a very important role. It's his sandbox that gets played in for like the entire last third of the film. It also kind of, as I was watching, I got kind of sad because like this is like the last major live action on screen appearances of Chadwick Boseman in the MCU before he passes. That's going to be the case for a long time coming. I do like the, you're in Wakanda now. <laughs> Thanos will only find dust and blood. Paul Bettany as the Vision. I just think Paul Bettany looks really nice. I mean, like, I think this is probably my favorite Vision, mostly because we don't get to see a ton of Vision until WandaVision. But I think the scenes between him and Wanda in Scotland are really nice. Mm -hmm. And that's, like, I think the best part of the two of them together. The stuff between the two of them, even going back to that quick moment at the end of Age of Ultron, I think it's fantastic. And the two of them play off each other so well. If we ever do WandaVision, we'll definitely talk about that a lot more. Yeah, just, there's a, such an earnestness in how he plays the Vision. He says the lines, but there's always something in his face and something in the timbre of his voice where he, you, there's sort of that subtext that I love you, but you really need to let go of me. You need to destroy me for the sake of everybody. As uh, Wanda is destroying the stone, right before Thanos attacks. There's just something about the way he presents himself, Paul Bettany, in that final moment where it's kind of like Vision almost looks euphoric. You know, he's about to die at the hand of the woman he loves. It's like he would rather, you know, if he's going to go, this is how he wants to do it. And he just like, he felt totally comfortable with her doing that. The way he showed that, I thought was really well done. So we might as well go on to Elizabeth Olsen as Wanda Maximoff. I think the only thing I don't like about Wanda 
and Vision is that I don't really know how they ended up together. Did I just forget how it happened or he saves her he saves her in Age of Ultron. Well yeah, okay, so did Clint. And there's just like they kind of have that moment. It, it's in the comics. You have to just sort of put together two and two by the time you get into Civil War that the two of them have somehow bonded and just sort of grappling onto that brief moment in in Age of Ultron where he saves her. Cuz I really like her. Like I pretty much always think she's good. But the one thing is that I don't understand really how her and Vision got to that point. For her to be like so absolutely dedicated to him. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and now we've seen Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. And it's like, yeah, I get it. Like, I understand that you love him, but like you love him, love him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think Elizabeth Olsen is fantastic. I mean, she has, she's. Oh, yeah, she's yeah. She's great. The, she's, she's great. She's the, I, I don't know. Just her performance. I buy it. I understand what you're saying. It almost seems like too much. What you ask yourself, God, why does she love him so much? And I guess you could, from a logical standpoint, step back and ask yourself that question. I see Elizabeth Olsen's performance and it's like, I don't know. She just sells it to me for, you know, for whatever reason. She really, really is totally dedicated dedicated to Vision and she loves him more than anything on earth which kind of makes sense you know she's lost she's lost everything herself and so Vision is kind of more than anyone else he's kind of reached out to her and and, and tried to be a, a part of her life so I kind of get it even if it doesn't make sense intuitively to me she just sells it I think she sells it really well I mean she just looks so pained and Wakanda you know, at the very end when she has to destroy the stone and then after Thanos does his thing this Sign of a phenomenal actor. Anthony Mackie as Sam Wilson, a.k.a. the Falcon. Don't really see much of Mackie in this one, unfortunately. What little you saw, you know, was fun. And at that point, he was getting ready for his own show. So, here, here. Sebastian Stan as Bucky Barnes slash the Winter Soldier. Yeah, I mean, at least we got to look at Sebastian Stan a couple times. <laughs> and his flowing locks. Mm-hmm. And his new arm. And his new fancy arm. I do like that scene between him and Rocket, where Rocket's like, how much for uh-huh. the gun? And he's like, no, any, or the arm? Or what? Like, he's like, how much for the gun? It's not for sale. How much, <laughs> how for, much the for the arm? arm? He just kind of looks at it. Oh, I'm totally getting that arm. I think that's funny every time. Denai Guerrera as Okoye. She's great. All the time. Love her. No no notes. Everything's good. <laughs> I also love her facial expressions. I think especially in this movie, you know exactly what she's thinking. And it's almost like, yeah, I'm right there with you. Like when she sees Bruce stumble in the Hulkbuster and she's kind of like, okay, we have to take this idiot into battle with us. <laughs> and the, the whole thing with like, what was she doing up there? Like, well, we know what she was doing up there. <laughs> well, the other thing, what at the very end, after T'Challa dusts, this is Okoye. She is argu- she's arguably in next to T'Challa, the greatest defender Wakanda has, their greatest warrior, the most fearless person you might be able to encounter. And she looks absolutely terrified. You will never see her look so scared. Just that look on her face. She's just terrified. She's absolutely terrified at what's just happened. And it's kind of like, that just shows you how bad things were, that even Okoye is just completely distraught. Letitia Wright as Shuri. I like that scene between her and Bruce when she says something super scientific and whatever. And she's like, why didn't you blah, 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 blah. And he's like, oh, we didn't think about it. Because we didn't think of it. (laughs) And she's like, oh, I'm sure you did the best you could. Yes. Backhanded, uh, backhanded compliment there. Dave Bautista as Drax the Destroyer. I think I've already said pretty much everything I need to say about uh, Drax in this movie. I think this is one of his best outings because he gets some great lines. You were imitating the god man. It's weird. 
He just, the deadpan delivery is just wonderful. Zoe Saldana as Gamora. I think this is her best one. This one, and then I also like, spoilers, in Endgame when we have, like, old 2014 Gamora. 2014 Gamora. 2014 Gamora. Gamora comes back. I think yeah. that's really cool, but I like Gamora in this one, and I like the sort of line that we've taken with her character. I think uh, Infinity War is her best outing. Everything involving Thanos. The scene on Nowhere when it looks like she's killed him. She's in tears, and it's kind of like, you wonder, you know, are they tears of joy because this tyrant who made her life a living hell is gone? Could there be some small part of her that it's like this was still for better or worse my father and i've just killed him and you, you never know i don't know if that was her choice or the russo brothers choice but it was it was a brilliant choice and she pulled it off really well you get a lot out of gamora in this film it's not just her kicking ass and i really appreciate that josh brolin as thanos and i already said everything i have to say about thanos so unless you want another you know, 10-minute rant at the end of this. I'm good. He's fine. You know, I like his voice as Thanos, that sort of gruff, grim sort of whatever. It works for me, but that's really all I have to say. Chris Pratt as Peter Quill slash Star-Lord. I liked him in this film. Not as much to do as he would in a in a Guardians movie, but it's still it's still Peter Quill through and through. And like you said, I do like the serious, the sort of dark, serious stuff he does. Where's Gamora? And, you know... When he starts wailing on Thanos, he just found out his girl is dead. That Thanos murdered his girlfriend. And yeah, he's distraught. And yeah, it was was it a smart thing for him to start wailing on Thanos? Absolutely not. But it made sense. Karen Gillan as Nebula. I think the only thing that stands out, which like unfortunately isn't really part of Karen Gillan being an actor, it's like CGI. But seeing Nebula like being tortured, like for some reason it... I just don't... I'd like to know more about Nebula, Gamora, and Thanos only because I don't understand why he's so partial to Gamora. When he, like... If he made Nebula, why wouldn't he then also love her? Like, that he's so absolutely awful to Nebula. I think the thought is, as I understand it, that he kept adding on pieces to her because she wasn't good enough for him. The reason that she is that way with all those enhancements is because he keeps trying to make her better and like every enhancement he makes never seems to do the trick and as such she's a disappointment to him which is the most irrational typical marvel bad parenting tm but yeah she's a great (laughs) she screams really well i mean that the torture scene is is still hard for me to watch Uh, it's 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 just she pulls that off really well Peter Dinklage as Itri. I suppose it was inevitable that we would see a Game of Thrones person show up in the MCU before Eternals. <laughs> uh, there you have it. Of course, I'm sure the irony is not lost on people of, you know, Peter Dinklage playing someone physically larger than, like, everybody else in the movie. Palm Clementiev as Mantis. I like Mantis. I love Mantis. I mean, she doesn't get She's a... grown on me, for sure. What is she? Kick, take, what is it? Kick. Kick names, I was take just, kick names, I was just thinking ass. that. I was kick like, names, what did she say? How ass. did she say it? I was, kick names, uh-huh. take ass. Yeah, yeah. That, isn't that it? I think yeah. Kick, I think it's kick names, take ass. Yeah. Hydrax, <laughs> when he's trying to do the invisible thing. Bradley Cooper is Rocket. It's Rocket. Yeah, okay. That scene that I love with Thor in the pod so much between him and Rocket. You still need Rocket. Rocket is you know equally part of that scene. It was a nice kind of against the type of the character kind of thing for him to be asking the introspective, you know, kind of touchy-feely questions for once. 
and just kind of not being a smart ass. It was kind of a, a nice little character thing to see Rocket actively decide, you know, I think I need to talk to this guy. And he becomes an active listener, which is not a characteristic that you would associate with Rocket. Vin Diesel is teenage Groot. Well, you know. Groot. I am Groot. I am Groot. I'm Groot. <laughs> Miscellaneous stuff. I usually talk about the music. It's great to have Alan Silvestri returning to the MCU, his first score since the original Avengers film. It was great hearing some of those themes. Uh, this is one of my favorite film scores of all time, only to perhaps be outdone by the Endgame score that he does. Should we go ahead and bring it on home before all of our equipment dies? Uh-huh. Well, we finally made it. <laughs> we got through a very long movie and a very long podcast. What's that your phone our- at? Mine's at 7%. Mine's at 19. I did bring as, in the charger for the laptop. But that's, as, but that's as low as mine's ever gotten on one of these episodes. Phew, we made it. And my voice held out. Thank you all for listening. Next up, as far as we know, the big one. Episode number 25 coming up next. Avengers Endgame. We knew Infinity War was going to be a big show. This one, of course, will be even bigger. And I think uh, Emily and I have... <laughs> I think Emily and I are a little wiped. So we're just going to go ahead and bid you all... A good evening. Stay safe. Take care. Thank you for listening. And we'll see you in the end game. Later. Have a good night. I know all of our stuff is dying. What's the song that um, we meet Peter Parker in in Civil War? Oh. I like that song too. Oh, I, yeah, I've, I've, I think I actually had a copy of that somewhere. I can. That one comes into my head pretty often, and I'm like, mm-hmm. where's that from? Oh, it's Spider Man. I can find that in a moment. I promise I can. Isn't it left hand something, probably? Yeah. Tom Holland Spider Man song. Come on, Music. Google. No, it's in. It's in uh... Come on, Google. Come on, Google. We can do it. Where is it? Oh, no. What? I can do it before you. I can do it. Oh, I got, so I got it. the wrong. No. I got the wrong. No. <laughs> Left hand free, all Jay. I yeah, found it. Okay. I was looking up the wrong movie. I went to Homecoming instead of Civil War. So. Oopsie. Oopsie Rookie mistake indeed. over there. Yeah, I know.